today on Against the Grain, what people in Yemen have endured is almost beyond description. What working-class Yemeni Americans have been through is almost never described or publicized. I'm CS. The scholar-activist Sunaina Myra discusses the community-engaged research she's conducted in Oakland, coming right up. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. The pandemic, the Muslim travel bans, the U.S.-backed Saudi bombing and blockade of Yemen, counterterrorism and surveillance programs. Yemeni Americans have faced and continue to confront major challenges to their well-being, their security, and their ability to connect with family back in Yemen. Yet despite these hurdles and hindrances, Yemeni Americans in places like the Bay Area have shown remarkable resilience. Sunaina Myra's new ethnographic project highlights the experiences of Yemeni American corner store owners and their families in Oakland. Sunaina Myra is professor of Asian American Studies at UC Davis, the author of a number of books about Asian, Arab, and Muslim American youth culture, migrant rights, and refugee organizing, Sunaina has contributed a chapter about Yemeni American life to the forthcoming book, Disciplinary Futures. When Sunaina and I connected recently, she began with these comments about the situation in Yemen. What started happening in 2015, but what had begun actually many years earlier, led to the world's worst humanitarian crisis. And, you know, while I despair, as do others, over the crisis that has been unfolding in Ukraine, that crisis in Yemen has really been forgotten. Um, And that forgotten war was started... Um, in the form of a proxy war. Um, So the U.S.'s best friend in the region, currently Saudi Arabia, along with other countries such as the UAE, um, engaged in a war for domination of Yemen against presumably the Houthi forces, um, leading to devastation of the country's natural resources as well as its built infrastructure and entailed a siege of Yemen that was backed by the U.S., which also enforced sanctions against Yemen that really strangled the economy and the people. And so Yemenis actually have experienced mass starvation, mass deaths, including of children, increased infant mortality, lack of access to sanitation and clean drinking water. And so basically a huge public health crisis um, that led to hundreds of thousands of deaths. Um, I also want to just note that um, the attacks on Yemen actually began earlier, um, and the drone war, um, you know, inflicted on Yemen actually began under President Obama, um, and also began earlier, you know, with the backing of our current President Joe Biden. And so this is a bipartisan, um, you know, backed proxy war on Yemen, which is at a strategic crossroads in the Middle East, um, and has been going on under the guise of the war on terror. Um, And so it's also been accompanied by counterterrorism at home here in the U.S. Why has Yemen been so important to the U.S.-led war on terror and the interventions in the region where Yemen sits? You know, that's a complicated question, um, CS. And I think that, you know, uh, Yemeni activists are probably best positioned to answer that. But I think there are a couple of things. One, as I mentioned, Yemen is at a strategic crossroads. Um, It is also a place that has been framed by the U.S. as a site of, you know, supposed terrorist attacks. Um, You know, Osama bin Laden, you know, was from Hadramut in Yemen, although, um, you know, he had, you know, moved um, out of Yemen some years ago. But I think essentially it is actually a proxy war between forces in the region. So, you know, Saudi Arabia versus Iran. Um, And so I think that the people of Yemen have basically been collateral damage for these, um, you know, imperial forces and some imperial forces in the region who are basically battling for hegemony um, of that region. Um, And I also think that it's important to remember 
that Yemen, you know, has endured Western colonization, British colonization in the south um, during the same period as the colonization of India. South Yemen was also colonized by the British and actually was the site of the first Marxist Muslim Republic with the Republic of South Yemen um, that was formed. Um, and then there was a later unification of Yemen. So it's been the site of various experiments that have been kind of counter hegemonic experiments that have opposed imperial intervention for a very, very long time. And so there is a book um, that I would suggest to your readers by Isa Blumi, B-L-U-M-I, called Destroying Yemen, which I think has a really powerful account um, of the ways in which, um, you know, these imperial forces and neoliberal capitalist powers have been actually engaged in this, you know, really violent battle that has led to the destruction of Yemen and the loss of sovereignties of Yemenis. Has the conflict in Yemen, has it spurred exodus and migration of Yemenis to the U.S. specifically? Or really did the bulk of Yemeni-American immigration occur before 2015? So the case of Yemeni migration is really fascinating. And the more I learned about it, you know, the more I realized that it's a, a very long history of migration, or rather, let's say, longer than most people assume. And it's also been an interrupted migration, precisely because of the war and the siege that we were just talking about. So in the case of California, Yemenis have actually been migrating for about three generations um, by now. And, you know, the earliest migrants came in the 1960s, they were agricultural workers. They actually flocked to um, the farmlands in the Central Valley. Um, some of them were actually secondary migrants, we would say, who had first worked in the auto industry in Detroit. So Detroit is home to one of the largest um, Yemeni communities, the largest Arab American community, many of whom were workers in the Ford auto plant. Um, and then um, with deindustrialization, some of them started moving out here to California. What I also learned when I started digging into this history is that, um, in fact, there were TD WA flights. They were actually chartered flights that shipped these Yemeni migrant workers to California to work you know, at these abysmal wages and these horrific labor conditions in the Central Valley, along with Latinx and, you know, Chicano workers at that time. Um, and then over time, some of those farm workers or their children started moving to cities in California. And so one of the cities in one of the metropolitan areas that they started migrating to was the Bay Area, where they then started working in the service sector as janitors primarily, um, but also then later on opening small businesses. How important is it that money coming from wage earners, people making money, Yemeni Americans in states like California, how important are those remittances to the lives and livelihoods of people in Yemen, their family members back in Yemen? Economic remittances are hugely important to the Yemeni community. That has been the lifeline for the country and those transnational connections have actually been the kind of social and cultural um, and political lifeline for the community here in the United States. And so Yemenis have a really long history um, of, you know, economic migration. So, you know, migrating to Saudi Arabia and to the Gulf countries as workers in the oil industry, sending money back home through all the tumultuous periods of upheaval during the Civil War and also, um, you know, later um, migrating to the UK, sometimes as uh, maritime workers in the merchant marine. So Yemenis also have a history of sea migration um, where they also were sending remittances back home. And then definitely agricultural workers in California, as well as the service workers and small business owners, regularly send remittances home. And so what was so disruptive about the Muslim ban under Trump, the so-called Muslim ban, which was also an Arab and African and Muslim travel ban targeting Yemen and other countries, was that it cut off that lifeline in terms of actual bodies being able to migrate and then the pressure on actually being able to send remittances to people who were trapped there and who were basically suffering because of the war um, was acute. And so what I learned through my research is that um, with the sanctions against Yemen in the name of counterterrorism that also labeled the Houthi forces as a terrorist group, money even being sent you know, for humanitarian reasons to Yemen was sometimes labeled as aid to terrorism and was also targeted. And many Yemenis, ordinary Yemeni Americans here in the Bay Area, found they could no longer send money through 
you know, Western Union or MoneyGram, they were no longer able to wire those remittances that people in that strangled country really needed in order to survive. And so it's been a really painful issue. And again, during the pandemic, as you can imagine, you know, with Yemenis suffering, um, you know, from the COVID, multiple times, you know, the rate of deaths due to COVID in Yemen then were happening over here with the failed medical infrastructure, with, you know, um, all the disruptions of medical supplies. Yemenis were not able to send um, the aid that people desperately needed there during that really, really painful time. What impact did the Trump travel bans have on families' ability to come together to reunite, maybe even temporarily, you know, people traveling back and forth between Yemen and the U.S. Yeah, on, on families' ability to stay together and connect with each other. So the travel ban was a really devastating moment for um, this transnational community because, you know, one thing that I just want to note is that Yemenis were always engaged in these transnational practices of you know, marrying people from the homeland, going back and forth, children spending some time in their home country with their relatives, in their ancestral village, learning the language, being part of that community. There just was a lot of back and forth. It's really quite amazing. And it's been an adaptive strategy for survival. And then with the Muslim ban, coupled with the siege in Yemen, so besieged in Yemen and banned here and bombed in their home country and then, you know, confined here due to these immigration restrictions, um, presumably in the name of counterterrorism, there was no longer you know, that, um, you know, safety net and also that social connection. And so one of the things that I want to kind of point out to people who might not be aware of this is that the Yemeni community actually suffered from an acute crisis of family separation at international borders. Now, people were really aware at the time and were also protesting, it must be acknowledged, the family separation at the U.S.-Mexico border. And definitely that was a tragic crisis. And the children who were incarcerated in those camps in the southern border of the United States did get some attention for a moment, and there was a great deal of organizing around that. Um, but as I was participating in those protests in solidarity, I couldn't help but thinking of this story of Yemeni family separation at these international borders where children were stuck, sometimes in Egypt or sometimes in Djibouti or in Malaysia, unable to actually be reunited with their parents who were here waiting to bring them over. Or sometimes there were parents who were stuck in their village in Yemen or had gone on a boat to Egypt or Djibouti and were waiting to be reunited with their children who had come here as unaccompanied minors, um, akin to the stories of the Central American migrants who, of course, in some cases are walking across borders or attempting to cross from the south, whereas these are children who were coming through different routes. And so what I was hearing, you know, for example, one young woman told me that her grandmother, um, who was trapped in Yemen, ended up actually fleeing from the war in a cattle ship because there just were no boats, you know, um, the port was closed. And so she actually was on a boat with cattle fleeing from the bombs, ended up going to Djibouti and then being able to get um, a flight once she got a visa because the U.S. embassy was closed in Sana. And so I think this kind of border violence is, again, a story that is little known, um, but that has really impacted this community in so many ways. My guest is Sunaina Myra. She is professor of Asian American Studies at UC Davis. She's affiliated with the Middle East South Asia Studies Program and the Cultural Studies Graduate Group at University of California, Davis. I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. You write that, and maybe figures have changed a bit, 3.6 million Yemenis have been displaced by the conflict in Yemen, with one million living in makeshift camps inside Yemen. Uh, many have managed to leave. And I wonder, can Yemenis seek asylum in the United States? Is this a strategy for them being able to immigrate to the United States? You know, that is um, a thorny question because, you know, my understanding is from having spoken to people in the community that very, very few people are actually able to seek asylum and that, you know, mostly they're trying to use family reunification um, visas to migrate and are not considered refugees. And again, I think the, you know, the, the contradiction in that is really acute when considering 
you know, the welcome that was given to Ukrainians who were fleeing that tragic war. And so I think there's a kind of racialized disparity here. Um, and I think in terms of the sanctuary movement, which was in fact the political movement that really spurred my thinking about this issue, you know, before the pandemic, um, hit us, um, has also, I think, um, a need to grapple um, with this question of displacement. So as you noted, there was internal displacement in Yemen, and there were Yemenis who were actually fleeing to other countries, but who were not allowed um, to enter here. So the ways in which, you know, the sanctuary movement did or did not actually grapple with the experiences of Arab and Muslim refugees who may not technically have been considered as those in need of sanctuary is something to be considered. And so one of the stories that I actually heard in the course of my research um, in the beginning of the pandemic was very poignant, which was actually from someone in Oakland um, who was working in the public schools. And, you know, um, the Oakland school district is considered to be a sanctuary school system, as is the state of California. Oakland is a sanctuary city. Um, but she pointed out that, you know, there were students who were afraid to come to school. There were students who were afraid to have their parents leave the house for fear that they would be picked up. And so I, I think there's been really a really kind of chilling effect due to these um, paradoxes um, in refugee policies. And if I can just add one thing, CS, which I think is also little known, is that um, there was an official travel ban right, that Trump promulgated and that has been contested and there have been various iterations over the years. Um, but there was also an unofficial travel ban that actually impacted Yemeni Americans years before, including during the Obama regime, because what I um, unearthed with the help of some immigration lawyers who pointed me to this is that there was a secret review system of UC, um, the USCIS, the US Customs and Immigration mm -hmm. System, that actually did a covert review of immigration and visa applications of Yemeni immigrants and actually used a secret national security blacklist to delay their immigration benefits. So their immigration and visa applications were held up for years. They were not given any recourse. They were not even told why um, there were these delays in their immigration applications. And so um, the ACLU and also the Asian Law Caucus and some other immigration attorneys uncovered this program, which was called CARP. So there was an unofficial travel plan that was actually in place. Covert policing and surveillance of Yemeni and other Arab and Muslim Americans in the Bay Area. A lot of time has elapsed since 9-11. Does this mean covert programs targeting these populations is a thing of the distant past? Not at all. You know, sadly, um, covert policing and surveillance is a permanent feature of the everyday lives of Yemeni Americans and of Arab and Muslim Americans in the Bay Area in general. But I learned, you know, somewhat to my horror, um, that the Yemeni American community has been particularly targeted. And um, I actually recalled when I was doing this research that some years ago, the then San Francisco police chief, George Gascon, actually tried to justify a massive expansion um, of police headquarters in San Francisco um, by pointing to the presumed threat of Yemeni terrorism in particular. And when people started organizing and protesting this, some civil rights um, and immigrant rights lawyers um, in San Francisco at the Asian Law Caucus and in other groups actually uncovered a secret collaboration between the SFPD and the Joint Terrorism Training Task Force, which was this federal program for interagency cooperation, but which was actually unlawful. It was a secret memo that had been signed. And when that was actually uncovered, um, a coalition sprang up called Coalition for a Safe San Francisco um, that started to challenge um, this covert policing and undercover surveillance. And that agreement was eventually overturned, as it was in the case of Oakland and its cooperation with the JTTF. Um, but that surveillance has actually continued. And I just want to give one example, which is that I had a student at UC Davis, whose name, of course, I have to keep anonymous, who was Yemeni-American and who um, disclosed to me um, that his family's grocery store had been targeted by the FBI, who came in and started interviewing him and his family members. Members. They were surveilling them on social media because they had been discussing the war in Syria. So just having a political discussion about current events in the region from which your family is from, you know, could lead to the FBI showing up at your corner store. Um, and this student became so anxious 
and was so terrified that they actually started to reconsider their decisions for where to go to college, for what career to undertake, just because they were living with this fear of everyday surveillance. Um, and you know, CS, I have studied this and researched this and documented this in my earlier research, but I think thinking about the ways in which 20 years after, you know, 9-11, there are young people from these communities who live with this, you know, intimacy of surveillance, as I think I would describe it, in their daily lives, and it's shaping, you know, major life decisions. So there is a kind of psychic internment, as one Yemeni American activist put it, or mental entrapment that the community lives with. And, you know, I worry that there is almost like a surveillance divide or surveillance apartheid, if you will, in the United States, because when I speak about some of these stories in my classroom, students who are not Arab, who are not Muslim, they are completely unaware that there is this level of infiltration of people's youth groups or Muslim student associations or mosques, and that there are other people who are deeply aware. So it's this racialized divide. But I also want to point out that people from this um, community, from these communities, are actually fighting back. And so there have actually been campaigns such as the one I just mentioned, um, the Coalition for Safe San Francisco, as well as others that are countering surveillance. And Sunaina, you also refer in one of your writings to the denaturalization of Yemeni Americans. What's happened to some Yemeni Americans' passports? Yes, so the issue of denaturalization is something, again, that um, I was very shocked to learn about. So um, around um, 2012 to 2014, there were several cases of Yemeni Americans who had U.S. passports who were in Sana'a or who traveled through Sana'a to Yemen um, and who, like I said before, were engaged in this kind of routine practice of, you know, visiting their families, going back home on holidays or going back to, you know, um, spend time or work there um, and who actually had their passports confiscated from them by the U.S. Embassy. And this happened to several people. Um, now, mind you, this was also during the drone war um, that had been already happening in Yemen. So later on, I think people started to connect the dots and realize that this was, you know, um, a way of actually kind of interning them in Yemen under the guise that they were somehow connected to terrorism, although those linkages were never established. Um, and eventually, there was actually a report about this um, by the Asian Law Caucus, um, as well as by um, the Open Society Initiative, the OSI, looking at the ways in which Yemeni Americans um, had basically been denaturalized in effect. Um, and then eventually in 2016, the Office of Inspector General, they actually did an audit and they admitted that these um, you know, Yemeni Americans um, had basically been forcibly um, stranded and left in exile um, during a very precarious time um, in Yemen. And so this is something that that I describe in my research as part of a transnational lockdown. So we heard a lot during the pandemic about the lockdown here in the United States due to COVID um, and you know people being immobilized and confined and not being able to travel and the ways in which this really undermined and eroded freedom of movement and left people feeling really sort of interned uh, in their homes uh, and denied the right to mobility. But Yemeni Americans have experienced a transnational lockdown um, that has been acute um, and has often been invisible. That's the voice of Sunaina Myra, S-U-N-A-I-N-A, M-A-I-R-A. She's professor of Asian American studies at UC Davis. Her books include The 9-11 Generation, Youth Rights and Solidarity in the War on Terror, Desi's in the House, Indian American Youth Culture in New York City, and Boycott, the Academy and Justice for Palestine. The program is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. Let's turn to getting some more detail about your community-engaged research in the Bay Area, specifically in Oakland, talking with Yemeni Americans during the pandemic. And uh, you write that there are an estimated eight to 10,000 Yemenis in the Bay Area. Corner stores in Oakland are a focus of your recent research project that we're talking about today. Are there many corner stores in Oakland owned and run by Yemeni American families? 
Yes, there are. So the majority, in fact, of small corner stores in Oakland um, are owned by Yemeni Americans. They really occupy a niche when it comes to these small businesses. So small grocery stores, liquor stores, as well as um, mobile phone stores more recently. Um, and, you know, it's hard to get exact data, I found, because Yemeni and Arabs are not counted in the census. But from talking to leaders of some of these um, corner store associations, such as the Bay Area Small Merchants Association, which is led by a Yemeni American store owner, you know, the estimate was, you know, about 200. Um, but there are so many more that probably haven't been counted. I mean, just sitting here where I am, you know, in Oakland, um, there's a Yemeni-owned corner store uh, a block away from me. There's one five blocks away from me, and then there's another one 10 blocks away from me. Um, and so these, you know, small businesses were basically essential businesses that were open during the pandemic. And they're, you know, a family run. So these essential workers, you know, fathers and sons and cousins and sisters um, were the ones who were providing food in many cases, um, you know, to neighborhoods which otherwise could not access um, provisions and essential items during the pandemic. In what sorts of neighborhoods are most Yemeni-owned stores in Oakland located? So there's a variety of neighborhoods all across Oakland in which Yemeni stores are situated. And so I was actually also really struck by the diversity of the populations they serve. Many of them are located in low-income black and brown communities where there are no large grocery stores or chain stores where people can access food and supplies. Um, but there are also Yemeni-owned stores in gentrified neighborhoods, such as in Temescal or in Glenview, where I also did a little bit of research. And the thing that I think um, was really striking to me, um, a couple of things, was one, despite the fact that these were essential workers on the front lines of the pandemic, um, these essential workers did not get any kind of aid from the state government or from the federal government. And I interviewed so many of them, and I found that not a single one of them had received a small business loan or any kind of aid other than that initial federal stimulus check of, you know, $1,200. Um, the other thing that I want to just note is that they were on the front lines of the pandemic here, but they and their families were on the front lines of the war over there, overseas in Yemen. And so there was this kind of dual crisis. And so I just want to kind of insert this reflection um, that really has been a thread running through my research and that I'm still grappling with to this day, frankly, is this notion of crisis. Um, and so there was a lot of talk, right, during the pandemic, and understandably so, about the national crisis, about the crisis of public health, um, you know, about the crisis of security and safety. Um, there was a crisis of policing, which indeed is a horrific and brutal crisis, right, of anti-black policing um, in this country and policing in black and brown communities. But, you know, this notion of crisis, I think, reifies its own assumptions, you know, because it sometimes can erase through this nationalist narrative, you know, crisis for whom, crisis where, crisis when. And I think that that nationalist narrative really, I think, consolidated um, a narrative about the U.S. as a nation in crisis, or even the global health crisis due to the you know pandemic, while erasing these other ongoing crises, um, which were existential threats to survival, which other communities were enduring. Um, obviously, not just Yemenis, um, you know, not just Arabs or Muslims, but other communities as well. Yemeni store owners were, and family members who worked in the stores and uh, employees, they were are understandably concerned about their health during the pandemic and still are. What did the owners tell you about customers' compliance with things like mask mandates? Oh, it was very frustrating and I shouldn't be laughing because, you know, it is a life and death issue, but they had such a sense of humor about it, even as they were concerned that customers were not masking up. And, you know, now to some extent, I think in middle class neighborhoods and in certain kind of communities, people got their designer masks and their cool masks and it almost became like a way of life or a new fashion item. But, you know, those early days, you know, um, I sort of think about it now, how all of this was so sudden and so new, and these people were trying to go to work and keep their businesses open and try to serve their customers, um, and people were not always basking up. Now, I do want to note that, you know, there's also been um, a debate um, by now about the question of resistance to masking that was very enmeshed with the culture wars, um, and it did give me some pause because I think mostly 
you know, from the vantage point of kind of liberal discourse in the Bay Area, it was framed as an issue of, um, you know, Trump supporters or, you know, conservatives who deny that there was, you know, a COVID crisis or, you know, people who just were refusing um, to mask um, who were maybe perhaps white or Republican or, um, you know, followers of Trump. But, you know, there's a whole other issue um, in communities of color um, that have dealt with medicalized racism and are distrustful of state policies. Um, and this definitely impacted some of the communities that the store owners were serving, um, but they were basically doing so at risk to their health. I think that's really the bottom line. Um, and so some of the stores that I was uh, visiting, you know, they had those signs up that Alameda County had put up during the mask mandate. Um, but it's a complicated issue. Um, and so I think the issue of survival, like I said earlier, when I was discussing this concept of crisis, um, is a really complicated one. Um, and it is something that they were grappling with on a daily basis. And their kids were working in the stores too, you know, so it's really quite heart-wrenching. Could you talk more about the medicalized racism you mentioned and how it may have affected attitudes toward masking held by members of historically targeted communities? Yes, I think it's just like the long history of medical experiments with African-American communities or Puerto Rican communities. Just, you know, the level of distrust with a state that, you know, has you know enacted kind of violent racism towards the same populations that now it was presuming to protect led to, sadly, because I think, you know, in the case of COVID, obviously this was, you know, a measure of survival, a reluctance to mask up in certain cases, a reluctance to get vaccinated. And I want to acknowledge that, you know, there were also Yemeni community members who had some of those same responses. And so it's a complicated one. It's also complicated because with a shift to, you know, kind of digital life and, you know, moving over one's sociality to Zoom, there were also many people who were left behind. And so one component of my project was also trying to understand what it was like for, you know, these working class or low income or even middle class, um, you know, immigrant communities where there was not um, technological literacy and um, digital fluency and people who just really were not able to, you know, easily pivot to Zoom for schooling and for work. And so um, I actually tried to address some of these issues in a virtual town hall um, in the spring of 2021. And even in just trying to do the Zoom town hall, um, it really just forced me to confront this um, kind of, you know, Zoom divide that we were all inhabiting at that time. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Sunaina Myra is a scholar activist based at UC Davis, engaged with immigrant and human rights activism. Her new ethnographic project that we are talking about today examines the impact on Yemeni Americans in Oakland of the pandemic, the Muslim bans, the war in Yemen, and counter-terrorism programs. So yes, you were telling me about the town hall, the virtual town hall that you convened in spring 2021, highlighting the voices of Yemeni small business owners, educators, and community activists. You also, in that same spring, held a digital workshop with Yemeni and Arab American small business owners, youth, and community advocates. And part of these initiatives were no doubt publicizing and disseminating the stories, the voices of Yemeni Americans and Arab Americans in Oakland, uh, what were some of the stories that you were told? And, you know, they could fit within some of the themes you've already talked about this hour or not uh, that, that have stood out for you and that you felt especially gratified to be part of facilitating, you know, getting this information out. Yes, you know, that project was so meaningful um, and it was really wonderful to be able to implement it, even though we had to eventually do it over Zoom. So it became a virtual digital storytelling workshop. Um, and we actually produced these short videos in collaboration with the Story Center in Berkeley, which is an organization that is focused on participatory media um, and that tries to actually work with um, immigrant and refugee communities and other marginalized populations in order to be able to put the tools of media in their hands so that they can tell their own stories. And so these were um, short three to five minute videos. We also commissioned um, art later on by Yemeni American artists that we included in the digital videos. And a couple of the stories that to me 
were really powerful and that gave me a lot of thought were one that I would just like to cite was by a young woman who is, you know, obviously in the video named Hanan Mubarez, who talked about what it was like for her growing up in Oakland as a Yemeni, given that sometimes she said even people in the media did not know where Yemen was or know that there was a Yemeni-American community. And so Hanan actually kind of reflected on how she was on the media advisory council. She was like on a youth advisory council for a local television station. And they asked her what her background was. And she said, I'm Yemeni-American. And they were like, what's that? Um, and she was just really horrified. And she ended up, you know, becoming this really amazing community activist. She's also a spoken word poet who has done some really powerful poetry um, that also speaks to the impact of the war on Yemen um, on her community and on her family. And then the other story that I want to share, well, there were a couple of stories um, that were actually by Yemeni American men. Um, and I think there is something really interesting about the ways in which, you know, their um, narratives reframed Yemeni American masculinity, because for a community that is often associated with store owners, both sort of within the community um, and then the stereotype outside of the community, um, they were really kind of challenging this and subverting it in very thoughtful ways. So one of the stories was by a Yemeni American therapist who actually grew up in a corner store, working at the store, who also reflected on the ways as a believing Muslim, he actually challenged the idea of selling liquor as something that was both not um, appropriate for him as a Muslim American, but also something that was destructive for the communities in which he lives. And this, by the way, is a whole, you know, other story, perhaps, if you will, and another kind of debate about the relationships um, between Arab-owned liquor stores in African-American and low-income communities in the Bay Area. And then the other story was by a Yemeni-American man who also did something different than the stereotype, which is um, he was a community activist at the Asian Law Caucus's National Security and Civil Rights Program. And he was but he was in, in particular hired to be a community advocate for the Yemeni community, given, as I was saying earlier, they've been so heavily targeted in counterterrorism operations. And so he spoke um, about the ways in which he was trying to resist um, the implications um, of these policing and surveillance programs by actually also reframing the notion of a community that is conflated with terrorism and war. And so he was part of an Al Jazeera project called Cooking Under the Ban, where uh, they focused on the different communities, you know, um, Yemenis, Iranians, Somalis, Iraqis, Syrians, um, and their food, because he wanted to think about resistance, not just as, you know, standing on a street corner and holding a placard, which he also did, but Muhammad Talib, um, this community activist, um, wanted to think about resilience um, and about, you know, joy in relation to Yemeni heritage and traditions that are beautiful and creative. Um, so those are just some of the stories. There were five of them that we produced that were all equally, you know, lovely and, and provocative. You have been a part of anti-war actions, or at least one big event in San Francisco. I think it took place on January 25th, 2021. It was the Global Day of Action for Yemen, marking the sixth anniversary of the war in Yemen. Use the format of the car caravan. How did this mode of protest come about? And more generally, what was your experience of the protest like? And what did you learn about uh, Yemeni American activism and Arab American activism? Yes, that was really a wonderful protest. And I think, you know, speaking of kind of resistance and resilience taking many forms. So this was actually an example of resistance that was about street action. And that was actually about overt political protest. And this Global Day of Action on January 25th, 2021, was marking the sixth anniversary of the war in Yemen. It was a global day. So there were actions in London, in New York, in D.C., in San Francisco, and in cities around the world. And in the Bay Area, it was the Yemeni Alliance Committee, whose members I interviewed and worked with as part of this project, who decided to organize a car caravan. Um, and, and this was also, I think, another moment in which I was also reflecting on the way in which the notion of activism and also public space has been had been transformed by the pandemic. So because the whole 
notion or concept of the public was in question and, and had to be, you know, kind of rethought because of the um, social distancing measures that had been put in place. You know, activists, if you remember, during Black Lives Matter protests um, had started to use this format. And so, you know, in order to kind of avoid, you know, large gatherings of people in person in close contact, people would actually sit in their cars, drape their cars with banners and flags, and then drive through public space to create a kind of alternative, you know, sort of sphere of public protest and to kind of politicize space, um, but in a way that was, you know, to some degree compliant with these, um, you know, social distancing protocols. Um, and so this particular protest was actually held in the financial district, and then there were these little pop-up rallies. And I, I will actually acknowledge that, you know, um, to be transparent, I spoke at one of those, you know, I was definitely participating as an activist scholar and the and the particular rally at which I spoke was outside of the offices of BlackRock, which is a war profiteering corporation, which was complicit um, with the war in Yemen. So it was also trying to highlight, you know, very kind of publicly and materially these linkages between the kind of militarized economy here and the war in Yemen over there. But I also want to just share um, that, you know, when I was driving by, you know, I had a poster also on my car window that I had taped. And then some construction workers in downtown San Francisco actually yelled, send the bombs over there. And I was so angry, CS. I mean, you know, I just had this kind of visceral reaction because I was so outraged. You know, I've been reading these reports, seeing these photos of these, you know, Yemeni children, like hearing these stories. Um, I just rolled down my window and I was like, would you want your kids to be bombed? And, you know, mind you, these construction workers were, you know, it seemed to me men of color. So they were also people of color and probably had no idea. Like, what is Yemen? Where is Yemen? What is Yemen? Probably no clue. But it, it brought home to me the ways in which Americans are conscripted into these imperial wars without any knowledge and, you know, with or without consent, I don't know. But it really um, was to me a moment in which um, that, that pain that I think that, you know, rage and sort of grief really came to the fore. The program is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. Sunaina Myra is my guest. You can find a link to her faculty page on our website at againstthegrain.org. She teaches in the Asian American Studies Department at UC Davis. And we're talking mostly about a chapter she wrote called Between a War and a Pandemic, Yemeni American Corner Stores During COVID, which is in the forthcoming book, Disciplinary Futures, Sociology and Conversation with American, Ethnic, and Indigenous Studies. It's edited by Nadia Kim and Pawan Dingra. You do, Sunaina, what is called community-engaged research. How is community-engaged research different than research done on a particular community in, in the more traditional sense? Right. You know, community-engaged research definitely builds on the tradition in ethnic studies, in my field, Asian American studies um, specifically, of, you know, knowledge production in the service of social change and in collaboration as much as possible with social movements. Um, and so I think in contrast to you know, concepts of research that are either based on extractive models of research where one just goes out and tries to get information from communities and then publish it um, in order to, you know, promote oneself and advance one's career. Um, the notion of community-engaged research is based on a dialogic model of collaboration um, and of reciprocity um, and of actually trying to also think about the ethics of research and who it benefits. Um, so for whom does one do research? Um, and so, I mean, it's not as if the power differential between the researcher and those who are participants can ever be erased. In fact, I think community-engaged research requires that one be very conscious um, and mindful and intentional about that. Um, but it is about, you know, trying to also think about research as um, a conduit to public advocacy on behalf of marginalized communities and those who are less privileged. And so the digital storytelling project was one small way in which I was trying to enact this. And it's very much in the tradition of ethnic studies and public scholarship. Now, I also want to acknowledge, and I want to be transparent about the fact that, you know, this research was funded by a Mellon ACLS fellowship for public scholarship, which I had received um, before the pandemic. And, you know, I was very grateful 
for that support because it allowed me to do this work. It allowed me to fund the digital storytelling program and the other events that I was able to do. Um, but the notion of public scholarship, I think, over time has become institutionalized. And, you know, I worry sometimes that, you know, what it has come to mean in its more, you know, sort of institutional form um, is not quite, I think, what ethnic studies scholars who've been doing public scholarship, you know, for about, you know, 70 years by now um, have been trying to do. Um, and so I think there's always that tension um, between, you know, scholarship that is trying to transform the academy um, and scholarship um, that then becomes promoted as another means, right, you know, for career advancement. And the broader context for community-engaged research, university research, is what you've called the, the neoliberal university. What are your big-picture aims in terms of challenging how today's universities work and changing their underlying rationales or priorities? That's a wonderful question. Thank you. So I did co-edit um, a whole book on this topic, and there's reams to be said, and millions of books, of course, um, to be written. But um, I had actually co-edited a book some years ago uh, with Pia Chatterjee called The Imperial University that is very related to this question, um, and which was a critique of the neoliberal corporatization of the university and the privatization of knowledge production and of higher education. And I think the um, corollary of that is uh, something I was touching on earlier, which is the way in which, you know, grant funding can sometimes direct and also, um, you know, commodify or monetize knowledge production so that only the things that are acceptable or safe or sanitized can be published um, and things that are considered more risky to um, US academics careers are marginalized or suppressed or even censored. And so with this latest debate, for example, of a critical race theory, we can see how this, you know, has been going on, um, you know, for a long time. This was this has been happening in the university well before Trump and the attacks on critical race theory and ethnic studies. Um, but the other um, part of it that I want to note is also, um, as someone who was trained in the social sciences, I think methodology is a complicated issue and what methods are considered acceptable or deemed to be, you know, respectable or appropriate. And so my forays into digital storytelling were an attempt to do something that's more creative. Um, but I think that, um, you know, the kind of neoliberal pressures and productivity for academics are really acute. Um, the job market is really insane. And then the last point I want to make is that the U.S. Academy is also complicit, you know, with state agendas um, on various levels. It may not be very direct. It may not be very covert. Um, it could happen in a really small scale. Um, but I think, you know, questioning why isn't there, uh, for example, more research on you know, the Yemeni diasporic community, the Palestinian diasporic community goes back to this imperial agenda in which, unfortunately, academics are sometimes conscripted, you know, even unwillingly. Sunaina, the, the history and current status of ethnic studies and ethnic studies departments is, is very important to you. Where would you situate ethnic studies at the current moment? I mean, over the decades, I think we can all acknowledge that ethnic studies has despite many obstacles and current challenges, has one WON institutional space. Uh, but what other features of, of its current state or situation need attention? That's a very important question, and it's one that's very close to my heart and my work. Um, and I think that, um, as you said, over the years, Ethnic Studies has won the institutional space that it deserves. However, as in all you know, processes of institutionalization, there is always a tension um, with the kind of mainstreaming or appropriation even, or undermining sometimes of those agendas. Now, I don't want to romanticize this, you know, have a utopian narrative about, you know, the ethnic studies movement as if this is somehow golden age, you know, that we can return to because, you know, clearly there is a lot of um, really courageous and vibrant and creative work that is indeed very oppositional that is still happening. But I think it's happening in the circumstances of a neoliberal 
university and academic job market that has made professionalization, I mean, it's just really on steroids sometimes, I feel. Um, it's just a degree to which, you know, academics have to commodify their work and market themselves. Um, and so that to me is really worrying. And I see the pressures that the students, the graduate students and, and PhD scholars that I mentor are under um, as being really intense. And so my concern is that um, as ethnic studies has also succumbed to this professionalization, um, that our research is not necessarily um, always addressing the difficult issues, um, the, the issues that might be more, you know, kind of threatening um, to the dominant, um, you know, status quo. Um, and then to make it more complicated, I think there's also a commodification. It's almost like a recuperation of public scholarship. So I think now that public scholarship has become something that in fact is <laughs> being promoted by that very same university apparatus, what does it mean? And so I want to be very mindful of that even in my own work, you know, to what degree am I complicit with this agenda? Um, is it possible? to do this work and to think about the resources that could be provided to these communities um, while still being careful about uh, the terms on which that scholarship is done. Um, and that said, I'm grateful for the resources that were given to me because it allowed me to do this work, particularly during the pandemic, at a time when I think um, I felt it was at some risk to myself, perhaps in, in terms of my health, but those conversations so needed to happen. I think the people that I spoke to felt heard um, I think the digital stories felt very important to them because I think Yemeni Americans have felt so invisibilized for so long. So I definitely am grateful for that too, you know? So it is a tension. Sunaina Myra, scholar activist, professor of Asian American Studies at UC Davis. Her books include The Imperial University, Academic Repression and Scholarly Dissent, which she co-edited, as she mentioned, with Pia Chatterjee and the 9-11 generation, youth rights and solidarity in the war on terror, and missing youth citizenship and empire after 9-11. Uh, Sunana, thanks for your work, this ethnographic project, your engagement with the Yemeni American community, and for joining us today. Thank you so much, CS. That was such a lovely dialogue. I am grateful for it. I think all the people that I spoke to would be grateful for that as well. I really appreciated this opportunity. And this is CS suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. <laughs>